The 22nd of July, you want to circle. 22nd of July is the Stop Iran Now rally. That's Wednesday, July 22nd, Times Square, 42nd Street, 7th Avenue in New York City. Again, starts at 5.30. Do your best to be there. It'll be, hopefully, effective, and um, hopefully we'll make an impact out there. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, good morning and uh, happy Quds Day. Oh, yeah, I see they celebrated in Iran. Today is, uh, this is since 1979 when Khomeini declared it. This is Quds Day International, which is, of course, a reference to Jerusalem and right. demonstrations supposedly pro-Palestinian, but they're actually marching the streets yelling death to Israel, but also bring down America. And I think that the coincidence, you could have had a decision announced at the same time as uh, Khamenei leads and calls for participation, and he says that millions will come, but in fact, that is not the case. And if you have a chance to check the pictures, they will make them look impressive, but it's far less people than they say. The media reports that um, you know there are plenty of large demonstrations, death to America, death to Israel, burning American flags, etc. So your point is that as many as were mobilized to be on the streets today for those types of activities, it's not as much as we think. It's not as much as we think. It's not as much as they say. And you know when they yell about death to the to, the, to arrogance or the arrogance powers, that's a reference to the United States. Right. And so while this is the Quds Day is supposedly a reference to Jerusalem, it is a reference to Jerusalem. Um, this is also an opportunity for them to um, to engage in anti-American activities, and these are the people we're negotiating with. Right. And in fact, one of their the IRGC um, uh, leaders, Iran Revolutionary Guard leaders, said that the destruction of Israel is the Islamic, Islamic world's top priority. That goes before the benefit of the people and not the worrying about the Muslims and all the people who are dying. But he, he, he was calling on people to attend the rally, rallies. But I'm telling you that from Iranian sources, the attendance is much less than they try to project. And, and the second part of your point, the irony, because in, in reality, as we know, anybody who closely follows the news knows that there could be an announcement of some type of deal any time. The irony, if that deal would have been announced while this is going on in Iran. Yes, but you know, all along, Khamenei has continued to say this. He said it at the Friday prayer, prayers not long ago, death to America and led the chance. He, he, his forces mocked, uh, bombed a mock-up of, uh, of a U.S. destroyer in the Persian Gulf. He, he has continuously engaged in anti-American rhetoric and incitement, and yet there's never a consequence. There's never a price. There's never a mention. And, you know, the Palestinians have done it all along also. Right. Um, so what do we call the American side of the negotiation? Is it disillusioned? Uh, you know, history does repeat itself. We have seen this before where, you know, where the United States and other countries, peaceful countries, try to negotiate with, you know, with entities. Mm-hmm. With entities or with countries that are, you know, committed to, you know, death to America and, you know, and things like that. Uh, what, what is the American side of this? Is it in fact disillusioned or you use a different term? That's a good question. I don't know how, what term actually to use, and I'm not sure that one term could describe it all. But there was a, a push. They wanted to meet this deadline today because after midnight last night, our time, uh, the law that the president signed 
gives Congress 60 days to review, which means everything is frozen for 60 days. So we're, we're now in that territory. We're now in the 60 territory. Now we're in the 60-day that any agreement between now and the end of the recess, uh, recess congressional recess in August, means that uh, you would have 60 days. And I think the 60 days ends on Rosh Hashanah, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, boy. Um, but oh, the, boy. the option is that he could wait till after the recess, or if the negotiations go to after the recess, and then he could submit it, and there would be only a 30-day review period. But he has to, within five days, present in writing any agreements that are reached. Now, the question is, what will be put in writing? Will the negotiators actually put down details or will we get again the same thing we had with Lausanne is a framework and they're saying you know they have to work out the committee that will review the inspections and and set up a protocol for that the lifting of sanctions has a committee that will you know set the schedule or will it really be a detailed deal but I think that they're hung up still uh, on the PMD the past military developments certainly the inspections issue has to be big and the schedule for uh, releasing the money because uh, Khamenei wants it uh, released immediately. Yeah, I mean, he, he he made that demand, which was pretty interesting to watch the other side make the demand this week that the sanctions must be. Yeah, and now you have other issues which have come up, which is one is the lifting of the arms embargo on Iran, which was not tied to this, um, uh, to, the, to the original sanctions bill. But Russia, they say, could make $7 billion in arms sales over the next 10 years if there's a nuclear deal and they need a big upgrade their fighters their jets their navy and air defense systems all of those things are very outdated and we know that they're making producing armor piercing weapons from uh, depleted uranium or natural uranium uh, so they are advancing all the time their capacity uh, but they need uh, these fundamental uh, the, the, the fundamentals of an army meaning new equipment uh, beyond what they manufacture on their own. But we have seen the clashes, and this is, gets very little reporting, but there's actually screaming and yelling at these sessions, and it's been going on all along. Zarif is known uh, to be a yeller. He got into a fight with the uh, foreign minister of the European Union, and he and Kerry uh, were screaming, and at one point uh, Zarif um, uh, when they were talking about Iran's role in inciting the Middle East, and he said, if we're talking about regional security, I'll take every one of you to the International Court for supporting Saddam Hussein. Oh. And then he, he told uh, Mogherini, the EU uh, foreign policy uh, leader, uh, he said, you lay off the threats. Never try to threaten the Iranians. Wow. So he takes a very hard line, and, and we see that the increase of the attacks by the Iranian hardliners, and yet the people, the young people especially, want to deal, want to see this regime diminished, and, uh, and of course, the ultimate fear is that, that the release of what could be $150 billion will go for terrorist attacks. There's no evidence that they will spend it on domestic needs. They increased the budgets of, of the IRGC, of their defense spending, by 30%, 40% last year. Now consider if they would have this uh, windfall uh, of money, and so they want to uh, space it out. They want to try and get some conditions, but... And they know that this is the major sp- state sponsor of terrorism around the world. And, and who's going to pay the price if, if uh, this money is released? And they can just go ahead and, uh, you know, provide more money to Hezbollah, to Hamas, to the Houthis, to all the other terrorist entities that they support. The President of the United States and or Secretary Kerry, do they react when they're 
you know, when they're in the midst of negotiations and American flags are burning in Tehran? No. Not a word. It's, it's, well, they say they do remonstrate with them, but I can tell you that some of the Europeans, and there have been articles about the fact that the U.S. has, uh, appears to be the lawyer for Iran in the negotiations that when accusations oh. come up about violations. Of everybody sitting in that room, the U.S. has that reputation? Well, that's what they say. I mean, that's reports that have come out. I'm not saying that it's right. it's believable, though. The way the way the way you read the, his statements in the press, it's believable. Well, it's Europeans who are, who are leaking this, and some of the Europeans, especially the French, are very uh, have expressed frustration with the the, uh, uh, the negotiations. And um, I mean, you know, and this whole idea that we're dealing with the moderates, th- there are no moderates. Rouhani's not a moderate. He's increased the number of executions. He's spread their in his regime, the terrorism, and ultimately it's the supreme leader. He is the supreme leader. That's his, his title is who he is. And, you know, we have the additional problem that you have a 10 to 15 year, uh, to we reach the zero breakout, meaning right. that they will be a nuclear, uh, in Iran will be a, a nuclear threshold state. And even if it's over the next 10 years, but in 10 years, right. they will have everything in place still, and, and they will have advanced in many areas, uh, and the, the sunset clause, it's just, uh, uh, it's ridiculous, the idea that in 10 years, they will be a nuclear power instantly. Right, so if July, if, mi- if midnight July 10th has passed, and obviously it has, silly question, what is the new deadline? I mean, we have no idea what the new deadline is at this point, right? There's nothing now rushing anybody to get this done. Well, they haven't set a specific uh, new deadline. In fact, said that they wouldn't. Uh, some people thought that this would pressure, put more pressure on the U.S. than it did on Iran, because Iran doesn't care about the congressional deadlines. Although one <laughs> That's <Iranian> true. <laughs> very important source told me that the Khamenei was taken aback. He felt that he had been uh, misled, and he never realized how important Congress is. That mm. he put all his eggs in, you know, with the administration. Yeah, don't worry, I didn't realize either until about a week ago how important Congress is. We've got to remind Congress that they realize how. Important <laughs> That's also and true. That they stand up and do the right thing now and That's make right. their voices heard. I mean, obviously, till we have a deal, we don't know what it is that we are that we are fighting against, but it, it, it affects the whole region. I mean, think of what the turmoil will be after this deal is announced. You see what Hamas is doing now, the crackdown, the fights, the the um, Iran Revolutionary Guard's role in in Syria, their liaisons with others, with Hezbollah. You know, Hezbollah has 110,000 missiles now. What What more? You know, they put on guidance systems. They will enhance them further. Uh, Hamas, which uh, has been suffering because... Iran did not give them some of the money they had expected uh, and is uh, also caught short because their their uh, smuggling tunnels to, to Sinai have been uh, cut off, and they are building new tunnels, by the way, I- into Egypt, and they are running weapons from Libya and the Sudan to ISIS and from ISIS taking weapons to Gaza. And they, have, uh, they also make a lot of money on supplying them with uh, all sorts of goods and taking goods smuggled into the Sinai to Gaza. Uh, to bypass the fact that uh, Egypt closed more than a thousand other tunnels and, and Israel closed off the routes uh, from uh, in, into Israel, so you or, or through the crossings. So, you know, because of the level of Israeli and Egyptian cooperation right now, if there was a way for them to destroy the tunnels you just described, the new ones going up or being built, they would go ahead and do so, right? They are working together, and, I mean, obviously they do it as long as Egypt sees it in its interest, and it certainly does. Right. 
um, and you, you know the the uh, fact is in central part of Sinai, uh, CC does not control it. The ISIS does, and there's whole sorts of groups, Al Qaeda and others. They all united under this supposed front, and it carried out many bloody attacks. But the army hit back. I think they killed some 200 people. What they did is they laid out the bodies of 60 of them, and in part it was a message to Israel to show that these guys are not a ragtag group, but they were. Uh, they had uh, bulletproof vests. They were in uniforms. They, they, you know, it was a military, and uh, they, they wanted people, including Israel, to see what the nature. Uh, though I don't think Israel has any illusions about what uh, what they're up against. Uh, you see Hamas boasting that they have produced uh, missiles, which give them a qualitative edge again. And they, uh, you know, they're talking. And, and and the PA, by the way, cracked down on Hamas in the West Bank. And arrested, I think, about 120 of them, because not because of Israel, but because they think the first target of these of the organization of, of Hamas in, in the West Bank is to overthrow Abbas and the PA. Right. So it, it uh, they want to weaken the PA and heighten tensions with Israel, and ultimately uh, take over there as they have in, in Gaza. Are we getting to a point where the PA is going to beg Israel for help against Hamas? <laughs> The truth is, it's happening every day. It's unbelievable. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Malcolm Holmline is back from Israel. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations. Oh, by the way, I should ask you about that, because you mentioned to us last Friday you'd have an opportunity to meet with the Prime Minister and others. Obviously, most of those conversations, I'm sure, are are not to be discussed on these airways. But anything you could tell us about uh, those encounters that were uh, of significance last week? Uh, I saw the Prime Minister several times, and the President, and most of the key ministers, and we talked about issues ranging from security and harassing to... Iran, 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 Iran. Plenty of Iran, huh? They dominate the conversation. I sat with them, uh, you know, till the middle of the night. You know, and the, the Knesset sessions went till 3.30 in the morning. Is internal, the Prime Minister faces really tough internal situation with the very thin margin. And in yeah. fact, the, the opposition pulled a fast one uh, this week and was able to get through a vote uh, by some maneuvering. That was a debt collection vote? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's so significant, but it, it was symbolic the right. fact that they were able to pull it off. Um, and and uh, I just wanted to say something else. That if those who think and ask me about, you know, removing the sanctions and, you know, give us time and snap back, there's no such thing as snap back. A uh, hundred French business leaders already signed up for a trip in September to Tehran. Three hundred Italian businessmen going there to do business. We know that they're increasing their business through Turkey, uh, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. Uh, people tell me that in Tehran, and I heard it again while I was in Israel, that you, you see life is going off as normal, cars, everything. It's the people who suffer, especially in r- rural areas outside the big cities, where, you know, but the government people and IRGC people don't, aren't hurt by the, by the sanctions, and they're also still doing a lot of business despite the uh, fact that, you know, their sales, the money has to be escrowed, uh, under the sanctions regime. And the point being that they're already on the road to, as much as we think the sanctions are, you know, are, are, are working or helping, they're on the road to economic independence, on the road to economic security. What do we call it? 
Well, without the sanctions being lifted fully, and if they were fully implemented as they should be, um, I mean, uh, you could cripple Iran. They, they uh, like everybody else, are dependent on the sales, the money coming into the, their coffers. And one of the big leverages is the, is the U.S. banking system. Nobody, no country wants to be shut out of the ability to trade in dollars and to have access to, to our banks, which Iran does not now. And the SWIFT system, for anybody who's ever done a money transfer, knows what it is. Um, these are very critical to any country that wants to be in the 21st century in international trade. Now you know why he's demanding those sanctions be lifted. That is they're why desperate. he wants the sanctions lifted. He's worried about, you know, 75% of the population of Iran, I think, are under 25. He's worried about the restlessness, and, and they know what goes on in the campuses. They make arrests. But there are many defiant acts going on in, um, in, in Iran by young people, by others. Unfortunately, the West abandoned them. The West ignored them and um, you know, demoralized them, I would say. Uh, so... The, you know, the the, uh, the consequences for Khamenei is that that he doesn't want a revolution. He doesn't want to lose control, and and knows that unemployment, all those things, uh, really, I think fifty percent or more, seventy percent of the young people are not employed. So they suffer. You don't see it though, probably in in Tehran or in Isfahan and big cities. All right. So are these sanctions going to come off the table? I mean, are these? <laughs> it, no. They will. They will remain on the table. Kerry will make sure it's part yeah, of the negotiation. On the, table. the question is whether they'll be enforced. Right. And how, and how will we relieve them? I mean, he says all at once. He says, based on performance, which is what we've all said, um, we would like to see them remain in place. You know, so many of the red lines, and there's a very interesting study by the uh, Foreign Policy Initiative, and people can Google it, where they take the statements, you know, along of what our red lines are, and see how they. You know, those demands from, you know, no centrifuges, no infrastructure, no total dismantlement, et cetera, have all been uh, whittled away. So w- what really gives us the leverage right now are the sanctions and the intrusive uh, uh, inspections. Anywhere, anytime seems to be melting away also. Uh, and we have met with uh, some of the people who, who dealt with the IEA and, and uh, who were employed by the International Atomic Energy Agency in dealing with Iran's nuclear program, and, and they are not very optimistic about our ability. And they, there are claims already that there are uh, secret places where they're manufacturing that we do not know about and do not have access to. Uh, and, and that was always the contention when we met with them in Vienna. They said, look, we're not worried about the places we know. We're worried about the places we don't know, yeah. what we don't know about those places. Yeah, and, 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 once, and, and by the way, this is a battle with, I shouldn't say battle, a presentation rather, that all of us can make to members of Congress, because at this point, you would suggest, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, that we've got to mobilize in terms of getting these points and messages across to members of Congress today, even though that you know we're, we're not on the 60-day clock yet. Uh, they've got to know that the majority of people, and I would guess this is true, you can tell me if I'm wrong, in the United States feel the Iranians are not trustworthy, and they, they can't be uh, you know taken at their word. And That's absolutely true that the majority of Americans do not believe they're trustworthy. Members of Congress will be coming home for the recess uh, before, not soon. You should reach out. Every senator should invite their members of Congress. I saw Carolyn Maloney wrote a very nice, uh, very strong letter to, to Secretary Kerry. We should acknowledge it. We should make sure that Senator Gillibrand and Senator Schumer hear from us 
encourage them. You know, Schumer has said the right things. We want to encourage him to continue in that way. We want to make sure that other key senators, from uh, those from Connecticut, you have the uh, Blumenthal, or in New Jersey, Cory Booker, uh, others have to hear from their constituents because they will be under a lot of counter pressure. You saw this week the members of the White House had a call with a group convened by, I forgot the name of the foundation, that is uh, pro-Iranian and fighting again and fighting for uh, the deal at any cost. And, and we have to make sure that we and all of our friends and Christians, uh, every race, every ethnicity, should have a stake. When they hang gays, when they hang Christians, when they hang Baha'i, when they execute people all over the region, when they encourage the radicalism, this is not targeting Jews first and foremost. That's right. It's everybody else as well. Yeah. And, and only by making our voices heard, and I know people say they get tired of it, et cetera, you're not going to be tired when your grandchildren ask you when you saw you know, the repetition in some ways of events 70 years earlier, and you said you never again, and you learned the lesson, and you don't translate it, then you didn't learn the lesson. That's for sure. Why is Senator Schumer cited as the key to all this when it comes to the Senate battle? Is it because whatever he decides, there'll be so many who are ready to follow his lead against the president on this? Well, I think it's because he is a very important senator. He, he uh, and many look to him, and he is uh, presumptively the next uh, majority leader. Right. So his role is, is really critical, and uh, and he's an important player. And others will look to him for guidance as to what direction they'll look to others as well. I think Ben Cardin, I think uh, Coons in Delaware, for those who know him, uh, uh, there are many. But nobody should be ignored. And when we want to see Gillibrand come out with more strong statements, we want uh, everybody. It's not. Uh, one person, but he is a uniquely influential member of the Senate who has always uh, been out front on uh, Israel issues, and so his his, word, his voice is, is especially critical. And because there's no deal on the table yet, and all a member of Congress has to say to any group that meets with them is, hey, we don't know what's in the deal yet. That's, that's, the, that's the point, so we have to wait. Let's see what... Right, but that's why I say that at least if you do have a meeting with a member of Congress, if anybody out there has a meeting with a member of Congress today, at least the point of the untrustworthiness of the Iranians and their administration, you know, at least those topics could be discussed. Now, please, whenever this thing does come across your desk, keep in the front of your mind that you're dealing with people who are not trustworthy on this. And, 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 the, and the Senate and the House, and the, I mean, Washington is not the enemy here. The enemy is Iran. Right. And we have to keep that focus very clear. And we need to build the, broad, the broadest coalition. And, not, and this should not be about Israel. This should be about America's security interests. That's why I laid out before, in more detail than I might otherwise, some of the issues, the PMD, the, the uh, past military dimensions. Right, the ones that uh, directly affect the United States. Pardon me? The ones that directly affect the United States. Those directly affect the United States, and that these are the issues you can talk about now, because they are going to be critical to any deal. If there, is, there may not be a deal at all, milk may walk away and then, you know, let it sit for a while and come back. This is a, a not an unusual uh, uh, tactic right. for... Uh, you know, for the Iranians, and, and they have, they feel that they have time. They think time is on their spot, side. Yeah. Uh, the and president, I, you know, only has, you know, 500 and some days left, so they know he wants this deal before he leaves. Right. Um, the um, it, It's interesting that, and I guess we should expect this, because the BDS movement is uh, so prominent and the anti-BDS movement continues to gain momentum, the presidential candidates, some of them already have come out with strong statements how they're, you know, completely against BDS. What else would you suspect that they would say, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to a degree, um, I, I, w- I would assume, I would assume that, 
the United States jury, and again, you know the polls, are more likely together on the anti-BDS issue than, I don't know, for instance, you know, whether there should be a two-state solution or not. You know, there the numbers are probably, you know, more balanced or maybe, you know, on the side of a two-state solution. And the reason I bring this up is because this might be, this anti-BDS movement and getting the presidential candidates to to back it, express their support for it, etc., could be a very big unifying factor for the American Jewish community and not as divisive as other factors have been in the Middle East. Do you, you understand where I'm seeing a little I, bit? I do completely, and we are very active on that front, and we are mobilizing because we expect a sharp increase in these activities in the in the campus on the campuses uh, in the next uh, semester, and a lot depends also post Iran, whatever way it comes out. Um, but what we're also seeing is the morphing of this into blatant anti-Semitism, not couched, not hidden. That the uh, attacks on campuses are physical assaults against Jewish students. Uh, we should not uh, diminish the significance of BDS, and you know how long I've talked about it on the show for many years because yeah. uh, this is not new this is something that's, uh, that the Palestinians launched 10 years ago I think this is actually the 10th anniversary week and uh, are promoting more and more and they've had some victories in some of the campuses, student initiatives again the campus, the universities themselves didn't follow through and didn't accept it but the very fact that this is becoming an accepted thing and now they make the distinction which is why the legislative thing we discussed last week with the State Department was so important about, you know, we're, we're only boycotting the West Bank products. We're only boycotting. Right. When, in fact, when you boycott that, you're really hurting Palestinian employees. You're hurting uh, people both in West Bank and Israeli Arabs as well as Jews. And, the um, you know, the, the, it, the, it morphs very quickly uh, into being a boycott of Israel. And the goal is clear. Why are they not having a BDS against Syria, which has killed 250,000 people? <laughs> Why is there no BDS about the killings of Christians? Why is there no BDS against Iran, which is hanging thousands of people? Why is there no BDS against ISIS or against any of these other the supporters of the countries like that? And it shows <coughs> that this is really an anti-Semitic move that targets only the state of Israel for these kind of discriminatory measures. Uh, curiosity, um, have you spoken to any members of the Jewish community in Greece, and is there anything of significance... Um, regarding the um, the economic situation in Greece as it relates to the Jewish community there. Absolutely. We are in touch with them. They're wonderful people uh, and suffering greatly. The day schools are under tremendous uh, pressure. I know that there's been assistance granted by some of the international Jewish agencies, and, uh, you know, we're very concerned about it. There's also been some manifestations of anti-Semitism which we've expressed ourselves to officials in Greece with whom we have close contact. But, you know, the, the, when I was in Israel this week, the, the foreign minister on the day of the vote was in Israel. Foreign minister of Greece. Yeah. <laughs> and pledging support and, and very positive relations, which was not expected when this left-wing government took over. But, in fact, they have more or less continued what the previous government, which is very pro-Israel, um, uh, initiated. So we have the... Yeah, the situation there is very tenuous. What can you tell? Suffering for it. What can you tell us about these uh, two Israelis that are missing in Gaza? And why did yeah. it take so many months for for the for the for the news report to uh, be revealed? Why were they keeping it under wraps? Because it makes it easier to deal with a terrorist that you raised the price that you uh, they wanted to try and ascertain exactly where they were, what the situation was, and they felt that. 
if you, you know, by dealing with it in this way, you might have a better chance of resolving it. Does anybody in Israel... by action or by negotiation. Does anybody in Israel know if they're still alive? They have asked for signs. The families have asked for signs, but the indications are certainly in the case of the Ethiopian that he is uh, being held there. The other one, it's less clear. And, again, it's been very cryptic. We don't have the full information yet. We'll have to see. And how do people keep this quiet in this day and age for 10 months? It's it's almost impossible when you well, think about it. it's a complicated case because the person may not be well and may have wandered across the border. He may have gone into Egypt, into Sinai. Uh, there are many things that they... Yeah, but you know how it is today. One tweet from one relative and... No, you know, you're absolutely right. I can't tell you how they... I know. It's it. unbelievable. But the family was told that that would jeopardize the efforts if... if uh, you know, if they if they went public, uh, you were. Can I mention one other? Yes, thing before we with something really important, and you know, it goes back to a theme that we've talked about many times. But UNESCO met this week. You know, they have this World Heritage Committee, right. which names sites to mm-hmm. to including Beichan was named uh, as a World Heritage site, which helps tourism and other. In the in the UNESCO, which is the Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization of the UN, adopted a one-sided resolution on the old city of Jerusalem that deliberately ignores the connection of either Christians or Jews to Jerusalem, and it takes Israel to task for engaging in illegal excavations in the old city. They mean the tunnels. They mean the city of David. Damaging the visual integrity, visual integrity, of the old city, why? Because of the Jerusalem light rail, and deploring the projects at the Western Wall Plaza, and what do they refer to it as? Burak Plaza. Now you remember when I spoke about this a long time ago, said that the ICESCO meeting where the UN UNESCO was present, and they had made a pitch to name uh, uh, Keva Rachel for them for Mohammed's driver right. and the and Marat Machpelah as a mosque, and that the Kotel is really Al Barak's wall. In this document, they refer to the uh, Kotel Plaza, the Western Wall Plaza, as Burak Plaza. Burak was Al Burak was the horse of Muhammad who ascended after his death, supposedly, uh, even though he never visited Israel or the area in his lifetime. And it just it it, it refers to the Temple Mount areas only as a Muslim holy site of worship. And this is, it, it, and this is the international body charged. With, with being responsible for, uh, you know, education, cultural uh, institutions and protecting the heritage of people. So when you hear this kind of report, when I tell you about why the, the, the gatherings, why you have to take it significantly and why we have to, I mean, I'm saying I think people, it's not much you can do to change the vote in UNESCO, which is almost automatically uh, or is automatically hostile to Israel. But they're taking away our past. We're coming to Erev Tishabav. And now they're denying the Jews heaven and calling it Barak's uh, Plaza? The committee members that were responsible for this, do we know what countries they're from? Oh, yeah, it's many. I, I, I don't have a list in front of me, but uh, it's many countries. And, yeah, look, you get always an automatic majority. You just have to put something in front of them that uh, the Arab countries or the Muslim countries want to support. And uh, you've warned us you know, they that don't, I didn't hear them take a resolution out about the destruction of Palmyra in the last couple of weeks, destroying the 2,000, 3,000 year old 
heritage is all over. It barely know. it barely got one day of coverage. I hate to tell you, nothing. And and you saw the pictures that they showed. I mean, I saw it in Israel. I didn't see it here, where they're taking sledgehammers in the museums and just destroying everything. And some of the stuff they just sell. And Congress is moving to try and cut the ability to sell the stuff you know, on the international market. But in most cases, they just destroy it. <laughs> The shock and the aftermath of what you just told us is that maybe it shouldn't be so shocking because of what I'm about to say, but you've warned us that the uh, that there's going to be a strong effort, and we're in it right now, to change Jewish history, to literally change the history of the world as it relates to Jews. And here is a perfect example, as you just mentioned. I think take away our past, take away our future. Right. I think I think this could be a wake up call for everybody because you've you you've had more subtle references in the past. Here we are talking about the Kotel, we're talking about Jerusalem, and we're talking about cutting off any uh, connection between the Jewish people of today and the uh, Holy City, which is you know for us pretty remarkable that anybody would try to do that. Um, you mentioned in the, the Hamadia article that focused on your uh, opinion about what's happening at the U.N., France may walk back a U.N. Security Council initiative to impose a timetable in the Middle East peace process. And, in fact, you said that in, it, it is possible that the PA representatives might want to concentrate on bringing war crimes allegations at the ICC rather than seeing a moderate U.N. resolution. So... Um, which is it going to be? Are they going to? Are they? Is it? Is it in fact going to be one or the other? They pursue criminal crimes, uh, war crimes rather, against Israel, or they try to lobby for a much stronger um, um, action by the UN Security Council in terms of an Israeli PA peace agreement. No, I, I think I said there that uh, also that the um, that because the the French resolution would have to be watered down in order to avoid an American veto, in order to get the votes, etc. And, and they, they know that. A tougher version or no version, rather than accepting a watered-down version, and that right now their focus has been on taking Israel to the International Criminal Court, etc. And as you know, that, that could apply to them as well, and we will make sure it applies to the Palestinians as well um, through legal cases. Uh, but uh, they're not clear that the language that the French are talking about would be sufficient for them. You saw that Ericot, who's the new Secretary General of the PA, has spoken this week about reversing all the things, including going back to the right of return, going back to, you know, rescinding the recognition of Israel, etc. So that they, they, for sure, are not going to want to have a resolution which calls on both sides to negotiate a two-state solution, etc. So it's interesting. They want everything dictated by them. But the 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 turning point, the 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 fulcrum that it all rests on, is whether the, whether they suspect that the U.S. will veto, uh, you know, the resolution. It, it, well, the French said that if the if the U.S. is going to veto, they won't. Why would they won't introduce it because they're not going to go into an exercise of futility. But if you notice that they've already started an alternative with the. Um, this effort at a um, what do they call it the P, the quartet plus right which means the Arabs plus the quartet right. that would be a new negotiating vehicle. Uh, they were asked this by the way as a result of my comments. They were asked at the press conference of our minister and others uh, were asked about it, which is exactly what we want them to be mm-hmm. and to to build up the pressure. The French are very critical in this area, and you know the foreign minister had just visited both Israel and the PA and. They, you know, New Zealand was the other sponsor, but I understand New Zealand's also not uh, moving forward right now. So my hope is that we can avoid this 
Uh, I'm not sure the administration wanted because they were going to use this as leverage with Israel and, um, you know, the French resolution. But uh, our hope is that we can force the French to get off of it. Right. All right. We will reconvene, uh, please, God, next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you for joining us. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations and joins us for the weekly update here. Friday mornings at JM in the AM. And I thank him very, very much.